hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Saturday morning, jumped out of bed, put on his best suit. He got in his car and raced like a jet, all the way to you. Knocked on your door with heart in hand, to ask you a question. Cause he knows that you're an old-fashioned man, yeah. Can I have your daughter for the rest of my life? Say yes, say yes, cause I need to know You say I'll never get your blessing till the day I die To block my friend, but the answer is no Hey, why you gotta be so rude? Don't you know I'm human too? Why you gotta be so rude? I'm gonna marry him anyway, I'll marry that boy Marry him anyway no matter what you say, I'll marry that boy We'll be a family hey, Why you gotta be so rude? I hate to do this, you leave no choice I can't live without him Love him or hate him, you will be boys And at that altar Oh, we will run away to another galaxy, you know. You know he's in love with me, and I will go anywhere he goes. Can I have your daughter for the rest of my life? Say yes, say yes, cause I need to know. You say I'll never get your blessing till the day I die. Tough luck, my friend, cause the answer's still no. Hey, why you gotta be so rude? Don't you know I'm human too? Why you gotta be so rude? I'm gonna marry him anyway, I'll marry that boy Marry him anyway, marry that boy No matter what you say, marry that boy We'll be a family Why you gotta be so daughter for the rest of my life say yes say yes cause i need to know you say i'll never get your blessing till the day i die to have a luck my friend no still means no and why you gotta be so rude don't you know i'm human too why you gotta be so rude i'm gonna marry him anyway i'll marry that boy marry him anyway Marry that boy, no matter what you say, marry that boy, we'll be a family. Hey, why you gotta be so That is Sophia Bristol, and she is the <clears throat> daughter of Dr. Jenny Fetterman who's a pediatric dentist in Connecticut, 
And you can tell Sophia is at that age where she wants the approval or her boyfriend is seeking approval for marriage. And you can figure out the rest. That is always uh, <clears throat> a young person's consternation as they're trying to find their way in the world. But a beautiful song and a beautiful mother and daughter. And you can check it out on uh, Sophia Bristol. And the record label is called Magic. Well, we have a great show for you this week. It's absolutely fantastic that the McCullough Report is going to go all the way over to Zimbabwe and the country of South Africa on the continent of Africa. And we are going to give the platform to Dr. Jackie Stone. And there's probably no doctor who's treated patients and has been so viciously pursued by government authorities than Dr. Jackie Stone. And we want her to tell the story and want you to hear it firsthand. She's supported by a PhD, Dr. Colleen Aldous, who's at a university in South Africa. They have a recent peer-reviewed paper on the use of ivermectin in severely hypoxemic patients and describing and observing its dramatic results after patients take their first dose of ivermectin. And Dr. Stone describes what she calls the unhooking phenomenon. That is the anti-spike protein capabilities of ivermectin unhooking uh, clumps of red blood cells and allowing blood flow. And that's the mechanism by which uh, oxygen levels improve and blood uh, flow improves through the lungs. <clears throat> it's a fascinating interview. I've been waiting it to get to it for the long time. And I've named this episode of the McCullough Report Hunting for Dr. Stone, following that title of that very famous uh, movie that was set in the United States, Cutting for Dr. Stone, if you remember that movie. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. You guessed it. I have another upper respiratory infection. I'm in the sore throat phase of it. I've been pressing the nation, bringing truth on the pandemic multiple meetings, multiple large group congregate settings, and sure enough, I have another upper respiratory tract infection. I travel with Cofix RX. I used it immediately in the hotel room. I've been using it consistently now uh, throughout this illness. Slept in a separate bedroom. 
as per my experience, my wife has not gotten the upper respiratory tract infection. I've canceled uh, a family event today, so I don't spread it to anyone else, but I'm relying on Cofix RX not only to reduce the intensity and duration of symptoms, but to reduce the spread. Go to our website, uh, America Out Loud, look on the banner bar for Cofix RX, and use that to get a discount on your purchase. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. Now we invite you friends to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Out loud. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I've been waiting for this interview for a long time to, in order to reel in both of these wonderful scientists and and uh, leaders in the pandemic response and <coughs> of interest of great interest to our audience. They're both women and they have uh, displayed some of the greatest degree of courage I think the world has seen in trying to break through to their patients and the world and, um, you know, um, and all of humanity on the issue of, of treating uh, this illness, COVID-19, to avoid hospitalization and death. And so, Today, joining me on the program is Dr. Jackie Stone from Zimbabwe and Dr. Colleen Aldous, who's a PhD scientist from Durban, South Africa. So they're joining me all the way on the McCullough Report from uh, the continent of Africa. And we're going to go over uh, their personal and professional uh, summary and and the story about involvement of, of early treatment and then discuss the most recent paper that they've published, which really now is, is highly cited. It's all over social media in, uh, you know, across the world. Dr. Stone, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thanks, Peter. It's an honor to be here. Can you give us a, a brief summary of your, of your medical training and background? Sure. So I'm currently working as a frontline primary care physician in Zimbabwe. I've got a bit of a, um, my background, I did my initial medical degree at the University of Cape Town and um, qualified cum laude out of that. And from there, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go into research or clinical medicine. So I did an honors degree in medical biochemistry and molecular genetics and finished that in 92. And from there, I decided clinical was the way to go. So I did my MRCP or physicians or internal medicine training at uh, St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London in infection and immunity during the height of the AIDS pandemic and when triple therapy 
came in. In um, I left Bath in '96. I got my MRCP then, and from there I actually ended up going to the Middle East, where I worked for a major airline, and got very interested in aviation medicine, risk assessment, um, and really emergency care and emergency plans. And there we had to deal with the SARS one pandemic in 2003. And from there went to Australia um, where I got my uh, FRSC GP, which is a family medicine and a rural sort of medicine uh, general practice qualification and also became a fellow of the College of Aerospace Medicine in Australasia. So that's kind of my background. And I sort of say that because I think it's quite a scientific background. And I think um, I put myself as science-based rather than, uh, you know, alternative. Boy, I think that's terrific. You know, just for the American audience, what you've heard is that's clearly the equivalent of uh, getting a medical degree, internal medicine training, and then an infectious disease Fellowship. A lot of people have have taken um, swipes at uh, doctors in our circle, including myself, and say, you know, you're not, uh, you didn't do an infectious disease fellowship. And my response is, I have done one now. That's for sure, <laughs> uh, because I trained in internal medicine and then cardiology and then epidemiology, and was formally trained in epidemiology. And you know, I've been involved in clinical investigation now for decades, and um, and I have absolutely no problem in asserting expertise in this infectious disease. Um, as like you, I've been managing patients now for several years. Dr. Aldous, let's bring you into the conversation. Colleen Aldous from South Africa. Can you uh, tell our audience about your background? Yes, uh, I'm a scientist. I'm not a clinician. I went the BSc, BSc Honors, Master's, PhD route. Um, I got my PhD quite late in life um, after having been a mother for a while and then found myself working in a, the School of Clinical Medicine at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. I am a geneticist, but my career has been pushed into becoming a healthcare scientist. I do some genetics work, but I supervise and do research along all the disciplines in our medical school. So I have supervised research studies in orthopedics, in general surgery, in anesthetics, in plastic surgery, in pediatrics as well. So I have got a background in research and how to do research and how to contribute towards the evidence base for evidence-based medicine. Excellent. Now, you're, are you a faculty at a medical school right now? Yes, I am at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in the School of Clinical Medicine there. Have you had any uh, adversity come your way since your involvement with COVID-19? At my university, there are scholars who are vehemently opposed to the use of ivermectin or any repurposed medication. They're public figures, vehemently opposed. But my institution does allow academic freedom. So I've never been called in. I have never been told that funding is going to be taken away from me. Um, I have been given academic freedom, freedom of expression, freedom to write for the public as well. And I really appreciate that. And I will use it responsibly. That's fantastic. Just, just so I can ask, 
do these same faculty, do they have vehement feelings about the use of certain antihypertensives or lipid-lowering therapy or bacterial antibiotics? Do they have any vehemence there? No. 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 So it's just regarding this, this drug. As far as I know, yes. And hydroxychloroquine. So it's yeah. odd that two drugs that are considered WHO essential medicines, two drugs that actually derive from natural substances, two drugs that have been safe and effective used for decades that they have very strong feelings about, but they don't have similar strong feelings about other drugs in the pharmacopoeia. That's true. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah. So Dr. Stone, let's uh, have you tell us what really did happen? You know, we, you know, Jackie Stone uh, became a heroine in the United States. We basically were watching the story of you and you were on many podcasts. We learned about you actually through FLCC. That's how I learned about you. And you, you started to tell America and the world about your experience in using ivermectin and in and, and, and both almost like in a field hospital approach. And I imagine uh, in even a more intensive care unit approach. And, and then we heard all kinds of stories. I mean, honestly, we heard stories that you were being pursued and then potentially being threatened with jail time. What really happened? Tell us the real the real story. Okay. Thanks, Peter. Um, so the vehement opposition to ivermectin is something that I've never encountered before. But the Zimbabwean story began in February 2020 when we saw our first COVID-19 patient who was a 51-year-old hypoxic male. And I said, no, you, you can't come into a primary care setting. You need to go to the hospital. And he said, well, the state hospital is on strike. So we were faced with a patient and we needed to do something. And I ended up nebulizing him. He got a lot better. And I shared it with the primary care physicians. And we started to look at international protocols. Dr. Zelenko's protocol, it made sense to us because Africans deal with primary, with infectious disease. You know, at the moment in Zimbabwe, there's 135,000 malaria cases a year and 1.4 million minimum of our population of HIV. So we know that combination therapy is required. We know what does and doesn't work. And we kind of figured in February 2020 that zinc and its ionophores, which is hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, uh, doxycycline, quercetine, that should work. We were very interested in Zelenko's work because he was showing the combination of hydroxy with zinc and azithro was working. And we started to use those in combination with nebulization. Then the Wagstaff paper came out. Professor Barodi in July was talking about ivermectin, doxy and zinc. Interest in ivermectin was mounting. And my experience with ivermectin in Australia was that every time that there was a nursing home outbreak, the nurses would all just give everybody ivermectin and I'd sign for it because it was such a safe and effective drug. I didn't even know it was in veterinary medication until, um, until 2021. So in August 2020, when the wave hit us, we had 17 ICU beds with ventilators which were understaffed in the public sector. The private sector were not taking COVID patients yet because they said they weren't ready. 
The primary care physicians were having patients pile up in the car park, very hypoxic. And none of the physicians, the internal medicine physicians, were answering their phones. And so we treated people with what made the most sense. About 17 of us ended up on a WhatsApp group. I'm not sure when your sequenced multi-drug therapy algorithm came out. I think it was about December. But we muddled our way through, realizing that there was an antiviral phase. We needed to treat with steroids and we needed to treat with anticoagulants between about 17 of us. But nonetheless, patients were continuing to present late and to die. And on the 7th of August, 2020, which is um, two years ago now thinking about it, uh, Martin Gill and I were talking on the phone and Martin was saying, add in ivermectin. And on the night of the 7th, I had three very, very ill patients we converted a staff room at a clinic into a 24-hour facility, and we had four beds, oxygen bottles, nurses, and that was pretty much it. It couldn't, by any stretch of the imagination, be called an ICU. We had monitored. And I walked in the next morning, and those three patients were all not just alive, but very much better. And the interesting thing was when I left, one patient was saturating at 98%, but was still moribund and confused and was in rapid atrial fibrillation with a 3D pulse. Once we gave him ivermectin with um, the nebulizer, the next morning he was on four liters a minute sitting up having breakfast. So it was a dramatic effect, which we saw with Martin Gill's patients as well. And that went round our WhatsApp group and suddenly everybody started prescribing ivermectin and the, de the deaths in the primary care sector literally stopped. Now, Dr. Stone, let me clarify. Were you giving, in that case, ivermectin via nebulization or were you given orally? Orally. And then what were you giving by nebulization? Um, it was an ionic and nanosilver formulation, which was... Um, Ultimately, well, Aaron Zakar, if you read his work from Israel, he speaks about what size of nanoparticular silver will coat the virus. And we were using a combination of his medication and um, an ionic version brought in from South Africa. So, yeah, so we were very much working separately. You know, in that time frame, we had Richard Bartlett, who was experimenting with um, nebulized budesonide. He actually went on U.S. national TV saying that that had a role. My, my first paper, Sequence Multidrug Therapy, was published August 7th, 2020 in the American Journal of Medicine. You know, it made this huge uh, splash in the United States and had letters to the editor. That came in from all over the world. And then by October of 2020, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, the, the single physician group in the United States that really supported early treatment, a physician group that was, you know, already in existence for 50 years and chartered in all the states. We had a home treatment guide by October of 2020 with the protocol. Now, interestingly, when we put together our first paper, I think we wrote it in June of 2020, submitted it um, in, early in July. By the time it was coming to publication, John McKinnon, who's an infectious disease doctor at Henry Ford, he said, you know, I wish we would have put ivermectin in there. I mean, the, the data were just emerging at that brink. You know, when you publish a paper, as you know, 
um, it's many, many months from the time you submit the paper. So, um, uh, you know, we, we, it, it, there's things that are not completely contemporary. Okay, Dr. Aldous, let me bring you back in and ask you the question. When a situation like this is happening, so it's in a sense, what Dr. Stone is describing is a mass casualty event. Um, uh, people are coming in, doctors are having to make uh, decisions. Um, you know, are there, are there any types of rules in terms of evidence or in terms of uh, what medical schools would consider proper or is it all really, as Dr. Stone uh, observed, that it's simply doctors rapidly trying to understand what other doctors are doing, other concepts, and applying them to the bedside? Well, I would say that the latter is what will happen. We have our, our, all, the, all the organizations that I was interacting with were all asking for a single large randomized control trial. And this would have been in December 2020. So the, the rules that people think by are randomized control trials. And the more I spoke about evidence-based medicine being a lot broader, and David Sackett's meaning for evidence-based medicine would be looking at the best possible evidence that you have. And the purpose of evidence-based medicine is humanitarian. It's certainly not a business model. And so I have created a lot of debate about what evidence-based medicine is because I, as I speak to my seniors and other people who are my colleagues, they will blindly go with the fact that we have to have randomized control trials. And those practicalities just prevent that from happening. I priced the cost of running a randomized control trial here in South Africa and it was going to be 20 million rand for something quite small. Um, 20 million rand would be, I think, $1,000 or just over $1,000. Um, that's a lot of money that people don't have in their research codes. There's no way people have got that to spend on a new trial. So I found that the way people are, are interpreting evidence-based medicine is to suit an agenda to keep... Um, to keep some research out of the mainstream. Um, there were and I found the language people were using to do this. For example, there was a public statement that came out from, from the South African pharmaceutical um, at Zapra stating that ivermectin could kill you. This was in December 2020. And a group of us got together and formed a group, uh, another group. We formed the group called the Ivermectin Interest Group, and that's how I got to meet Jackie. And we wrote to Sapra and said, but look at the evidence. You can't stop it. It doesn't kill people. And then they created some uh, a, a compassionate use program, but they kept saying they needed one single large randomized control trial. So I think that what we've got to do, having gone through this this pandemic is get the minds together from across the world and come up with a new set of rules about how we should be looking at evidence-based medicine. I think we should, particularly with repurposed drugs, we should be looking at literature that has is pre-existing on safety. And for ivermectin, we had that brilliant paper from Gutso et al. in 2002, I think it is. We then need to look at dosages 
Now, the dosages were something that were confused. I think in the beginning, people were using it at the dosages for antiparasitic therapy. And as people started using it and the Gutso paper got out there, they were being able to increase the dose. So I think we should be looking at um, the dosage, the safety, at least. We should look at the ease of rollout. I mean, you can make ivermectin anywhere. And those are the kinds of things we should look for evidence of that to be able to make a type one error decision before we even consider randomized control trials. Randomized control trials take a very long time to organize, to get off the ground, to get ethics for. And I believe we should come up with a new rigorous evidence-based medicine approach to pandemics and the use of um, re for, for repurposing drugs. I think those are great comments, you know, and I, I was thinking the same way and I was leading a group, but the first paper I had, you know, Emory, UCLA, I had some of the best U.S. centers. And what I said, I said, listen, you know, I do large randomized trials. I'm a clinical trialist. I've got hundreds and hundreds of publications in PubMed. You know, I love large randomized trials, but every one I've done has taken two to five years. Uh, a trial that, you know, is really, really worth digging in on needs to be, you know, 20 to 40,000 patients. Um, you know, that's what we had for the vaccine trials. And so if there was the wherewithal, sure, we could do a large randomized trial. Um, but th the idea that we should wait and do nothing and let patients die and wait for a large randomized trial. I mean, look at where we are. We're now nearly three years into this. There are no large randomized trials of early treatment. And on top of that, what with myself and Dr. McKinnon and and other infectious disease doctor said is a single drug is not going to work. It's, it's, it's just, we don't do that for a staph infection for crying out loud. We always use drugs in combination. And so we knew it was going to be combination from the beginning. And what we said is we're just looking for drugs with a signal of benefit from all available sources of evidence, a signal of benefit and acceptable safety. And Harvey Risch, who anchored our first paper and also, uh, you know, was at our U S Senate testimony in November of 2020, Harvey Rich said, listen, it's all about safety. The doctors need to try something as long as it's safe. So Dr. Stone, ivermectin was no question it was safe. In the, in the large safety databases, there's fewer safety reports on ivermectin than there are acetaminophen or paracetamol. So you had safety. So what was the problem? Why did people now intensify their opposition to what you were doing? Well, what was interesting is that everything that seemed to come in in terms of opposition to ivermectin happened in December, January, so December 2020 going into January 2021. And a number of things happened all over the world. So Andrew Hill, his, he was initially on a group that I was on, and he was promoting ivermectin, and then suddenly he came up with insufficient evidence on about the 19th of January 2020. 21. Um, I was detained on the 19th of January 2021. Um, I was inspected by our medical council. And the next day, well, that night, I was reported by the registrar of our medical council for dealing in dangerous drugs and making chemical poisons. And I'm sorry to laugh. But in retrospect, it's actually quite funny. Um, I was going to be facing a month in jail without bail or trial because the country was in lockdown. 
And um, when they informed me that I was to be detained, I said, well, that's fine, but please can you bring my oxygen because I'm still on oxygen at night. I'm recovering from COVID. Anyway, apparently nobody has ever exited the Harare um, Narcotics Division or Harare Central Prison as quickly as I have because five minutes later I was on the pavement. <laughs> Anyway, so no, hang on. Let's just to, I want this to be clear. So you actually were detained. You were physically jailed, but for a few minutes and then you were out. Is that true? No, I was there for about eight hours. About eight hours. Yeah. And the charge um, was that you were using ivermectin. No. Well, that was the charge the night before. They then changed it to a charge of advertising and then told me I was getting lots more charges, which they then came up with after they kind of went through the medical act and tried to find things that I might have done wrong. So um, why I find the whole thing very, very interesting. The person that reported me, um, I'm not going to use names here, but she is not a Zimbabwean. She um, is a senior fellow of the Wellcome Trust and is paid by them. And the person who has restricted my license is on the Special Advisory Group of Experts for Vaccination with WHO. And uh, um, I was reported to the police by the medical registrar. And in that group, there definitely seems to be a WHO Welcome Trust Unitaid trend, let's just say. So I think it was super governmental rather than governmental. And this has been pushed very much by the Medical Council and those affiliated with those organizations rather than by the state. Because a lot of people have said to me, you know, the government of Zimbabwe, and it hasn't been, we have been totally supported by our permanent secretary of health, whose name is Dr. Jasper Chimedza, who is uh, head of the Air Force as well. He's an aviation trained doctor. And everything, turned we went from hero to zero in december january 2021 which is i think when simone gold was also arrested in um and i think she's still in jail in the states so what is interesting oh and tom barodi also took a lot of flack in australia over that time so that seems to be the time when there seemed to be an intervention against ivermectin at a level that seemed to be above government. But I want to I want to be clear on this, that it's your interpretation is that those who are visibly trying to suppress you and through you suppress ivermectin, they were part of what we term in my new book, the biopharmaceutical complex or otherwise a vaccine syndicate. That is those trying to suppress early treatment have a connection to advancing vaccines. Is that true? 100%. One of my patients is very involved in intelligence here. And I was basically told that anything that caused vaccine hesitancy would be opposed. And essentially what they did was make an example of me. So the doctors in this country were afraid to prescribe ivermectin. And we go to judgment on the 8th of September, which is next Thursday. And um, my verdict will be passed then, and I may be facing jail time and a criminal record. 
You know, what's happened in the United States, there were some parallels. Some doctors had their license reviewed. Uh, I think a few doctors had their license uh, revoked so they can no longer practice. Uh, it, it's cost each doctor tremendous amounts of money and legal fees to, and this is just to treat patients with ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. I, I think the greatest resistance actually is with ivermectin because I think ivermectin is one of, you know, one of the most dynamic drugs probably as you do um, in treating COVID-19. But of interest, if we fast forward to May of 2022, myself, Pierre Corey, Paul Merrick, any of the notable doctors in America treating patients and publishing, we received a letter of disciplinary action from the American Board of Internal Medicine. And in the complaint letter, it says that we've made public statements that could actually dissuade or discourage someone from taking a vaccine. So they've actually linked it very much to advancing the vaccines. That was the, the big issue. So I think that's the case. Dr. Aldous, in your um, environment in the medical school, is there is there any type of evidence or observation you could make or in your community that there is the suppression of early treatment in order to advance the vaccines? Well, I, I wouldn't be able to put my head in a block and say there's causation, but there's definitely suppression. Um, I was approached by somebody who, who would turn my writing into language that would be easily understood by the press and she was going to send the, the um, articles out and I got all everything was rejected from the majority of the South African press all the the media 24 um the the, the, the all the big press except one um newspaper daily called biz news they none of them would publish anything I wrote um except if a journalist interviewed me, then they would. And what was interesting is I approached the ombudsman on a, a video that was from America. It was being flighted around about August last year. It had been created in, in February beforehand, where they were saying that um, ivermectin is for animals and it could kill people and I complained I said that that was outdated to start with when people still had that notion and it's incorrect information and the response to me was that I was a pseudoscientist and I was not going to be given oxygen so <laughs> um, there's definitely been suppression in the press there has been um, the, a lot of doctors have been quietly using ivermectin but they will never admit it. Um, and people have taken it into the hospitals and given it to patients. But overall, um, the overall consensus is ivermectin is for the quacks. That's the word that they uh, that they use in South Africa. Now, but what's your interpretation of this most recent flurry of trials from ITAC to the Altogether trial to the NIH trial? Uh, these trials where the declaration is that ivermectin has no benefit. What's your quick interpretation of these? Well, th those trials can easily be um, found wanting in terms of scientific integrity. Uh, I've made inquiries, particularly on the TOGETHER trial, about some figures, and I was rebuffed 
I was told that I should consider myself as part of the Flat Earth Society by the senior author. Um, the ITEC trial, interestingly, comes up with a mortality advantage with a p-value of 0.09. And to me, because I don't bow to the almighty p-value for everything, I think that's pretty good. But nobody else is interpreting that as a pretty good signal for mortality. So I, I, I believe that those trials have very spurious outcome measures, they, and, and this is what our trial can inform. Next time people want to do a large randomized control trial, they should look at dosages, and they should look at measuring something that's properly measurable, not does the person go to hospital when that can be decided by, at, at what point does somebody go to hospital? If they're elderly, you'd probably send them in a little earlier than if they're younger. So I think the measures are wrong. I think there's a lot of fault in the designs. And I've heard somebody, um, a senior um, person, refer to them as trials designed to fail. Now, I've always been a non-conspiracy theorist, but I'm beginning to wonder if that is not the case. Well, you because... know, interesting way to frame it. People have said that here in the United States as well. I've looked at those trials carefully and, and uh, you know, of interest when we get to more objective endpoints, uh, you know, by a few patients, almost every study shows a benefit for ivermectin, despite the authors concluding exactly. uh, th there's no effect. And the other interesting thing about these trials is that ivermectin's perfectly safe because don't forget they had safety. So we get to randomized trials, perfectly safe. But you know their shortcomings are uh, using too small of a dose, doing too late in the course of treatment, too, too uh, um, uh, short of a treatment duration, all of these things. There's not a single trial that I have seen that uses ivermectin as I do successfully in my practice. Dr. Stone, do you agree with that? I agree 100%. And the TOGETHER trial I will mention in particular because I remember exactly where I was because it was April Fool's Day at Victoria Falls. And when I read the data, I couldn't make sense of it. And the um, main issue that I had was that I calculated a 60% reduction in mortality even they, though they used too little too late because the denominator that they used was the intention to treat when the denominator they should have used was those that completed the protocol. And that became a big question among our group. And it wasn't, didn't even need a, a people. This was basic maths. Have you used the right denominator? And, you know, given that Southern Hemisphere doctors are seen as having invalid data because we can't do maths, um, I've had this discussion with uh, some of the South American doctors and given that our data is considered unreliable because of our situation, we find it quite hard to swallow something where a journal as prestigious as the New England Journal of Medicine has made a basic mathematical error and they will not reply to our queries and they will not release the data. And again, getting back to what you're saying, I use a minimum of 0.2 milligrams per kilo of ivermectin, and I escalate up to 0.6 milligrams per kilo if the patient is very ill. And most of these studies are using 0.1 to 0.2, and they're stopping it at five days instead of when the patient's well. 
So everything that I've seen, as far as I'm concerned, especially in the ones that seem designed to fail, is too little, too late, and stopped too early. Well, that's a good segue into your breakthrough paper studying um, hypoxemic patients, and I, I think the types of observations made. And again, initially, when we you know are trying to save lives, we're making scientific observations, and then we report them, and we draw inferences. That's basically how uh, clinical science e evolves. Uh, tell us about your paper. Uh, what's the what's the setting? and uh, the observations and, and what you found? So initially, um, the original paper, about five of the 17 GPs started to put our, our cases together. And we came up with 104 patients who were saturating between 50% and 90%. In fact, 51% and 90%. And we found that our mortality was less than 1%. These patients on sequence multidrug therapy, home oxygen. Um, and that was compared to the same group of patients in the state hospital that had a 35.4% mortality. So we had a well over 30-fold reduction in mortality. And so but, we put a spreadsheet together. And Sorry? Yeah, but, but to clarify, the ones at the state hospital... Uh, did not receive ivermectin. No, they didn't. They got oxygen. That was it. Right. So you so you have you have a fair comparison group. I mean that that's one of the points, right? Okay. Yes. But from that, we um, I contacted um, Colleen and uh, Dr. David Shine um, because one of the things we were seeing with ivermectin was the restoration of circulation specifically on the monitors, you can see um, the pulse waveform and it was improving dramatically with patients improving clinically at the same time. And as well as that, the D-dimers were rocketing up with ivermectin, which we initially thought was because the patient was getting worse, but they weren't, they were actually breaking down clots. And David was doing a lot of hemagglutination work at the time, and we started liaising. And then when we started analyzing the data, the data that fitted the best with Dr. Hazan's data, Dr. Sabine Hazan's data, was this dramatic improvement in oxygenation in the first 24 hours. And in the second wave in particular, we had no beds, we had no oxygen, we had no staff. So we were managing patients in their homes without oxygen. And I don't know if this could have happened in a normal country, as in, an, as in a high-income country, because those patients would have been hospitalized and put in HDU. But instead, they were nebulized, aggressively treated with ivermectin, doxycycline, and zinc, and their SATs were monitored. They would buy their own saturation monitor, and they would send us a WhatsApp of their saturations every few hours so we could see what was happening. And we have many documented cases of people going from 79% to 92% literally over three hours. And once we saw that happening, we got quite excited about it. But David managed to find the 34 patients that had received no oxygen and had had the same protocol given to them and where we had documentation of oxygen saturations over 
basically a 48-hour period. Patients, we, we were so busy over that time, patients were advised to only contact us if their SATs dropped below 90. And none of them got back to us. And that group of patients formed the foundation of the paper, which supports Sabine's work. Yeah, I was an author on the paper with Sabine and, and uh, David Scheim is actually a friend. He's been on the McCullough Report, former NIH scientist. Um, what is what is your best inference on how ivermectin is having such a rapid effect on improving oxygenation? So my take on it um, is that I don't think that clumped red cells carry oxygen very well. And I think the circulation by day eight is got lots of microthrombi. And, you know, ivermectin is known to be a zincaionophore and inhibit viral replication. But in the later stages, it's, it's not, it's too late. Viral replication has occurred and you have inflammation. So what I believe it's doing and what I've seen on watching patients is that they reperfuse. And I've got a brilliant slide that um, I'll try and send you where you can actually see a patient over six hours go from a very poor pulse waveform to completely normal circulation with clinical resolution and with a rapid increase in his D-dimer. Now that suggests that there's clot breakdown. And if ivermectin, which has been shown in computer modeling studies, does coat spike protein, which I view as a triple fishing hook, it allows the red cells to become unhooked. David thinks it's partly through the CD147 receptor, which is the malaria receptor, but there are other receptors involved. And I think these clumps of red cells that are not carrying oxygen suddenly break up and you've now got individual red cells able to carry oxygen. That you know that makes that's probably the best explanation I've ever heard. That makes a ton of sense. All the autopsies done and reported in the literature, and one's actually in my scope of practice. The patients have had micro blood clots in the they all do in the lungs. Micro blood clots in the lungs. Uh, Kat, uh, Colleen, let me ask you from an evidence-based perspective. This series of observations. Uh, could this all just be happenstance? Wouldn't the naysayer say that, you know what, the patients would have gotten better anyway? Uh, how do we know that drugs actually really did what we think they did? Well, we did the T-test. And the, the for those people who bow to the almighty P-value, P equals 0 0.60 and then 1. So the statistics point to the fact that it works. But to me, the, the serendipitous thing is that there are the, the study's been repeated by both Ewan and Sabine and um, Dr. Babalola in Nigeria. So there are three other studies that show similar increases in oxygenation. Um, Dr. Babalola's was not as dramatic because I, I don't think he used the full um, triple therapy, but it's dramatic enough to show that ivermectin had a, an impact because another study from, I think it's the same group that did not use ivermectin showed a consistent drop and a remaining, uh, uh, for a long time, the, the oxygen sets 
remaining quite low on a regimen that did not include ivermectin. So it's definitely not happenstance. For those who only go with stat statistics, we can show it there, but we can also show it by comparing with other studies across the world. The, 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 the science has been replicated. One of the tenets of good science is it must be replicable. It's been replicated. Sure. So it's a large signal, statistically significant. It's internally consistent because all the other observations, Dr. Stone just put out the clinical observations at their pulse waveform, other uh, measures improve, oxygenation improves, and then it's externally consistent. There's external generalizability. These are, uh, you know, these are the, the, the hallmarks of a scientific observation that is actually uh, close to truth or has arrived at truth. And this is the building block. I mean, we would all love to have a large prospective randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. But three years into it, I don't even know when that's being planned with contemporary multi-drug therapy. So I, I think your work is, is absolutely commendable. I have um, a question, Dr. Stone, uh, regarding an observation I've made. I, I have managed patients at home now, over time become more comfortable with managing hypoxemic patients, patients who clearly have oxygen saturations in the 70s. I had a couple, one was a, a physician and her and her husband. They were in the uh, O2 saturations in the 70s for a few weeks at home. We did every treatment uh, uh, possible. And the rules that we came up with, as long as uh, that uh, thinking, mental thinking and mentation was clear, and as long as the work of breathing wasn't too difficult, that we would actually go along with this hypoxemia and not uh, pull the panic button and go to the hospital. What is it about the hypoxemia of COVID-19 pulmonary infection? What is it about it that makes it so tolerable? Because I can tell you with a consolidative pneumonia, pneumococcal pneumonia or heart failure, the patient would not survive for a, a, you know, a few weeks with O2 saturation in the 70s. How does this work? So I don't think that we, and a lot of people don't understand that COVID-19 is a disease of the endothelium and the blood. And so in a patient with pneumococcal pneumonia, the lungs are full of fluid. The lungs are stiff. If you try and ventilate a patient with a severe pneumonia, or even with SARS-CoV-1, the work of breathing is hard because the J receptors can't, your lungs cannot stretch, they are non-compliant. We've tried to bag a COVID-19 patient and our lowest presentation was at 14, which is one four percent Then we would um, find that it's very easy to move the lungs. And the patient isn't uncomfortable if the stretch receptors aren't affected. So we need to see the hypoxia as being caused by the inability of the red cells to pick up oxygen rather than the inability of oxygen to cross into the blood. So my interpretation is the patient is not nearly as uncomfortable because effectively it's almost like, like having carbon monoxide poisoning. You're not carrying oxygen. The, the second thing is all of our patients were managed at home. In Zimbabwe, and this occurs to this day and will hopefully change soon, if you go to hospital, they will stop your ivermectin, and our patients know that. So we've got some very good ICU nurses. Our sickest patient was at home for three weeks with SATs in the 70s. 
The nurse organized the entire family. Certain people were on food. So she just got them out of the way, basically. But people were caring for this man amazingly well. And he had fabulous home nursing care, home oxygen, and a family around him that were doing everything possible to keep him alive. And I really think that patients do much better in that setting than in a red zone on no effective treatment drugs, alone, afraid, and basically very often on palliative oxygen. Well, I tell you, we're going to have to leave it here and finish the interview, but what an incredible story, a story from Africa, uh, uh, you know, the Zimbabwe and, and support from South Africa, the collaboration, you know, David Scheim, former National Institutes of Health uh, scientist, Tom Barodi, uh, you, you know, you know, the inventor of um, multidrug therapy for Helicobacter pylori, Dr. Stone, probably in one person, uh, you have had the direct experience through uh, HIV, through SARS-1, and now SARS-2 in one person clinically, and you've examined these patients as I have. And Dr. Aldous, someone who has just carefully and dispassionately reviewed the evidence and had the, the, the intellectual um, courage and also the intellectual flexibility to understand that we can't have large randomized trials done ahead of time and handed an answer to us. And you know, three years into it, in my view, we don't have a single high quality, large randomized trial. And I think a, a monotherapy trial may not even be appropriate. We need some type of uh, multi-drug therapy or multi-lug layered therapy. I want to thank on behalf of the America Out Loud McCullough Report audience, thank both of you for joining us for a terrific interview. And um, I want to reach back to you in the future and update, particularly Dr. Stone, regarding hopefully a successful resolution of your professional and personal situation. Hopefully I'll report a successful one on mine. All I know is that the best I can do is publish to the best I can uh, do in a corrupted uh, medical journal environment right now, as well as go to the public and be in the press as much as humanly possible. And you may, you may know I am on national TV, I think nearly every day now uh, in the United States, doing everything I can as a public figure to bring truth uh, to America and to the world. So uh, with that, let me thank both of you for joining me on the McCullough Report. It's been an honor. Thank you. It has been an honor. Thank you, Peter. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report.